0: Once you've accepted Christ, is there any way to lose your salvation? What about people who seem to be genuine followers and then walk away from the faith? Well, today on Focal Point, Mike Fabares tackles these weighty questions about eternal security. wished you could raise your hand in the middle of a church service to ask a question? Well, today on Focal Point, we've set aside some time for Pastor Mike Fabares to answer a question from a listener like you. And if you'd like to ask Pastor Mike about another topic, well, stay tuned. I'll share our contact information at the end of the program. But right now, let's join Executive Director Jay Wharton inside the pastor's study for this edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? I'm here with Pastor Mike to get
1: some answers for questions that our listeners have sent in. And today, Pastor Mike, we're tackling a question about salvation. This listener writes, I've heard you comment that a real follower of Jesus will endure in the faith. But can a true Christian backslide?
2: Yeah, well, it's not my comment, though I have said it. It's what the New Testament teaches, that real Christians, converted Christians, people with the Holy Spirit living in their lives, regenerate people, are going to endure in their Christian faith. And what I mean by that is they're going to live as Christians for the remainder of their lives. Now, the Bible says that Christians obviously sin, and it's not something that uh, stops completely. The trajectory or direction of our lives, and I trust the frequency of our sin clearly changes. That's what repentance is going to result in, uh, a new pattern of obedience. What I don't want to do with the concept of backsliding is say that, well, yeah, someone can claim Christ— and can live a life contrary to Christ and still call themselves Christians. Now, we may do that in terms of a, an act or a decision or something that we've done, but as a regular pattern of life, that's what the book of First John is all about. You can't live a regular pattern of life as a non-Christian and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't follow Christ, but I'm a follower of Christ. Uh, I don't love God, but, you know, I'm a Christian, and that means I kind of theoretically love God. I mean, real Christians love God. They follow Christ. They don't do it perfectly. We stumble in many ways, as James says, but we don't live a life, a flagrant non-Christian life that doesn't follow Jesus Christ. When we sin, the Spirit of God dwells in us. We're convicted. We're drawn to a place of, of repentance. We're, I mean, not just drawn. We're pushed. The picture of conviction of the
1: Spirit driving us to admit our sin and repent of it and, and move forward. What would you want to see from a Christian, a believer, that maybe is struggling with a particular sin and maybe they continue to fall and fall and fall? What would you be looking in their lives to determine whether they truly are regenerate? All right. Well, two passages come to mind. One is in the passage I was just referring
2: to about discipline. Uh, that he's going to discipline us when we sin, if we're not repentant right away, is proceeded with, look at you guys. He says, you may have said you're trying to live godly lives, but you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Now, that's a a very dramatic statement. But the point is, I mean, there's a lot more you can do to fight this temptation in your life. There's a lot more you can do to sacrifice your comfort and convenience and pleasures and denying yourself to fight this sin. It's funny how the word struggling, you know, can be defined so uh, casually. You know, struggling means oops, oops, I blew it. Eh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's real struggling is the kind of struggling that the writer of Hebrews is trying to refer to there in chapter 12. That You're going to work hard at this. You're going to see the Spirit of God aiding, moving, motivating, and empowering you to fight this sin in a severe way. So... I would say we could probably do a lot more in our fight against sin than whatever we're doing. And let's not use the word struggle unless, indeed, we are struggling. It should be a struggle for us. And the Bible says it will be. Now, when I say that, as a passage comes to mind where people say, well, as Christians, isn't obedience a joy? And, and yeah, I would say are, the commands of God are not burdensome. And by that, I mean the internal impulse of my life is to obey God as a Christian. So my heart is in sync with this. I want this. It's my flesh that gives me the trouble that fights against that. It wages war, as Peter says, against my soul. So I'm in that battle. But in my heart of hearts, if you ask me, do I want to please God in this or do I want to fall to temptation?
1: The answer is I want to please God in this. Yeah, you're not going to have that burden of what you would get for sin in terms of how you would feel, that, that pressing on you. When you're obeying God, you're you're feeling, hey, I did the right thing, and that it feels good to do the right thing.
2: Right. And it's the difference between David and Saul, right? When Saul sinned, he covered it up. He made excuses. When David sinned, God's hand was heavy upon him. His energy was drained. The difference is one here was in step with God, had the Spirit of God dwelling in his life, and then the other one was just running from God with whatever he could get away with. And, and that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Both of them can have the label, God's man or God's woman. but When it comes down to it, what's going on in your heart? If the spirit of God lives there, right, you're going to have a kind of Christian life that's going to work hard and step up your fight against sin and temptation because
1: the spirit of God won't have it any other way. You've talked a little bit about maybe patterns of sin in life. Would you Expect to see a lessening, obviously, as we go forward. Talk a little bit about that. How does that... Work out well, I, in our lives. I
2: wouldn't say. Listen, if you have got a pattern of sin, clearly you're not a Christian in some particular temptation because Satan knows our weaknesses. He's always going to go after it. We're going to find that there's a frequent front of the attack of the enemy in terms of temptation. So, you know, I realize there can be a series of sins and failures in the Christian life that'll all be grouped in the same category or maybe the exact same problem. Uh, but all I'm saying is, in time, there's going to be that focus of attention on seeing that attacked and and fortified and. And I think there are so many things the Bible gives us as resources beyond just the spirit of God's conviction and empowerment, but things like the body of Christ, you know, accountability. He gave us pastors and leaders and counselors in the church to help walk us through these things. So it ought to be that the pressure of the spirit of God in conviction leads us to pull out all the stops as we continue to see that this one area of my life is a real problem to where at some point you say, I got to deal with the avenue, whether it's, you know, this relationship or this job or this place that I live or whatever it might be. I got to change the whole category of the avenue of temptation so that I can see this rectified. So, you know, Satan's going to constantly war against us. Our flesh is going to be weak, but I would just say, we
1: we just need to get used to the battle against sin and it'll always be a battle for the real Christian well, we use this word backsliding. Can you give us a little background of where that comes from? Right. And it depends on the
2: translation that you're reading. Uh, I think a translation that's trying to be very literal is going to usually use that word in in our English translations of the Old Testament when it's speaking uh, of the nation of Israel. Not always that way, but mostly that way. Talking about, well, Israel in its heyday here was doing really well under this king or in this particular time, and then the nation backslid, right? In other words, the progress. If you were charting out the spirituality or the righteousness of the nation, it was good here. It was moving here in a good direction. And then it took a dive here. And the word that'll translate that will translate into English backsliding. But you don't want to create some artificial category that says, listen, that guy's backslidden. That's why, though he claims Christ, he lives a life that is completely contrary to Christ. I'm not talking about Christians who are stumbling and getting back up and stumbling and repenting. I'm talking about the guy who just lives like a non-Christian, who indulges in the appetites of the flesh who lives like any other non-Christian, but he says he's a Christian. And we say, well, I guess he's just backslidden because at one time he seemed pretty into Christ. And now, you know, that's just a season of his life. I'm sure he's fine with God. You're not fine with God, right? There's a problem. You read the book of 1 John and the Bible says, if you say you walk in step with him or you're in the light or you know God and you don't keep his commandments, your life is contrary to that. He says, you're a liar. The truth's not in you. Now that's the Bible speaking. That's not me speaking. So I just want to say, don't create an artificial category that gives you a sense of peace that my life can look just like every other non-Christian. I cannot care about God and his word. I don't obey it.
1: And yet I'm a Christian because I walked an aisle when I was a kid. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I'm sure that discussion will be helpful for a lot of listeners. And you've talked about this message in one of your sermons, and we're going to play that right now, Faithful to God, a Question of Perseverance, Salvation, and Eternal Security.
2: turn to Hebrews 3, the topic is that of faithfulness. Uh, Moses' Christ's and our own. Uh, Christ uh, faithful and, and worthy of more praise than Moses, and then the remainder of the text is about us being faithful, and we need to be faithful, and the call for us to be faithful. But the issues raised in the provocative wording of verses 6 and 14 prompt us to question some of the facts that are related to our belonging in the family of God. This chapter, in general, and these two verses in particular, need to be understood against a biblical backdrop of how one is accepted into the family of God, and if or when that acceptance is ever revoked. What is our salvation contingent upon? What or who determines whether or not we're going to be saved? Look at verse number six, but Christ, he's faithful as a son over God's house. Uh, over and against Moses, he's, he's, Moses was faithful, Christ is perfectly faithful, and it says, we are his house, the metaphor here, we're a part of his family, if, there's the key word, we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Drop down to verse 14. Rephrase, same concept, same package, same key word, exactly the same key word. Verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had it first. And that brings up questions of all kinds that relate to what is this salvation thing all about? How do we get it? Can we lose it? How does this work? Right? A cursory look at the text. It seems to, to clearly read, we are his house if we hold to our courage and hope firmly. Then we've come to share in Christ verse 14, if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had it first. And, and if that seems like it hangs our salvation on our faithfulness, you can add these verses to it as well, because they say basically the same thing. Jot them down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 2, which simply says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word, Paul says, that I preach to you. Or how about Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, one sentence. It says, but now you have been reconciled by Christ... If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Okay? That seems really clear. Here's where it leads people. It leads people to the conclusion that I get to be a child of God if I finish the race faithfully. And while that may seem to be what it's saying, as we'll see a little bit later, Uh, That would be a misunderstanding of the assumed backdrop of how salvation works, as the writer of Hebrews addresses these people about their salvation. Or, to invert it, this may sound more familiar to you, if I am a child of God and I fail to be faithful, then I cease to be a child of God. Does that sound more familiar? We lose it. Okay. Jot this down. We need to note the real contingency of your salvation. What is the real contingency of your salvation? Is your salvation contingent upon whether or not you are faithful? Okay, Well, understand, obviously, that seems to be the statement. And in in, in what sense is that true? Well, let's look at the backdrop, the foundation, the girders that are planted in this truth from Ephesians chapter 1. So once you jot that down, note the real contingency of your salvation. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, which is very helpful for us to understand in reality what the contingency of our salvation is all about. Ephesians chapter one, let's start in verse number three after Paul's salutation, his beginning words, and he says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, key word, in him before the creation of the world. When did he choose us? Before the creation of the world, not a trick question. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he, here's a word, it's a big word, scary word, theological word, what is it? predestined us to be adopted. When did this happen before the foundation of the world? As his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. That's what he wanted. Therefore, he chose us. Therefore, he predestined us to be adopted. Okay, there's more in this text. We'll look at it. But what we need to realize is that the real contingency of our salvation, according to this text, is God's eternal choice that took place outside of time When he said, I choose you. And the text goes on to say, let's keep reading, that that will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace, what we don't deserve. And it will envelop and and include the forgiveness of our sins, which is in accordance with the riches of his grace, which, by the way, he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's what he wants, his decisions. According to his good pleasure, which he, here's another big word, purposed in Christ. That was his purpose. And he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, which is the collecting of his kingdom all the way to the end of time, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He's collecting people in real time that's all a playing out of his purpose and plan of choosing individuals before the foundation of the world. Verse 11, in him. If you didn't get it earlier in verse 4, verse 11 says it again. We were also chosen, having been, here's our word again, Predestined according to the plan of Him who works out most things in conformity. There's a little smudge on my text. What does it say? Everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. Okay, people ask sometimes, Do you believe in predestination? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess so. That's the word here used redundantly in Scripture to say that God predestined people to be saved. And if you didn't catch that word, look at the words around it. He chose them according to his pleasure and will, verse 5. His will, verse 9. He purposed, verse 9. He put into effect, verse 10. In verse 11, he chose us. He predestined us according to his plan. Oh, and by the way, just like everything that works out in conforming to his will, his, what he wants in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now it's working out in real time, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ. Notice that we're not the subject there. God is. We're the object. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, then at that point in time, look what happens. We're marked in him with a seal. That's like the king puts the seal. You've heard that a million times. What's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. It's a sign from God. It's a promise from God. Boom, you get God's spirit who is, by the way, a deposit, now here's some big words coming again, guaranteeing our inheritance, it's not, it's not a hope by and by, I hope it happens, in a guarantee of our inheritance until uh, the redemption of those who might be, will be, what does it say, are God's possession. Oh, to the praise of his glory. I mean, that's a powerful statement, which makes it very clear that your salvation and mine is contingent in the most foundational way on God's sovereign choice. Okay. Why? Look across the page, Ephesians chapter 2. The reason he must choose, plan, initiate, and adopt individuals into his family is because that's the only way it's going to happen. We can't do it. Why? Here's what he says. Here's the analogy. Verse 1, chapter 2. As for you, you were, what's the word? Dead. Dead. Dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live, interesting, it's an analogy, of course, you were alive biologically, but spiritually you were dead, and you followed all the ways of the world and the kingdom of the air, the spirit that's now at work and those that are disobedient, all of us lived among them, even Paul himself says at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, all we were was a big target for God's wrath. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. So that's what we were, dead, and what was coming? God's wrath. But, verse 4, because of our wonderful, ingenious realization of the wisdom of the gospel. Help me now if that's not right. Because we were smart enough to eke ourselves out of that deadness. No, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, God made us alive in Christ. You ever seen a resurrection? I've missed out on most of those. But there were some in the Bible, very clear. you got a guy's body decaying in a grave. And Jesus steps on the scene and says, Lazarus... Come forth. Remember that passage? It wasn't a dialogue with Lazarus. This was not a bilateral discussion. It was not an agreement. This was God, in the form of a human being, Christ, saying to Lazarus, you're dead, come forth. That was a one-way kind of thing and a one-way kind of decision. And he says here, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God, verse 5, made you alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. You couldn't do it. God had to do it. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, not our wisdom, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace, verse 5, that you've been saved. It's through faith. It's not of yourself because, by the way, you were dead to God. See, if Christ is going to go and collect followers, he is, from his perspective, walking through the graveyard saying to people, follow me. You know how many responses you'll get from the graveyard? None, unless, of course, you have the power to say, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. Then all of a sudden, we got some response. Christ goes into the world, he says, follow me. And the only way we get a response is if God, according to verse 5, makes us alive with Christ. Why did God have to plan, choose, initiate, and adopt individuals into his family? Because we couldn't do it. We were incapable of doing it. Because according to God, we were dead. Note the real contingency of our salvation. We'll get back to what we're talking about in Hebrews 3. I realize there's some contingency here. I've got to figure out what it is. So I start with the first part of the sentence, which is going to tell me something. And I need to know the tense of the verb because that'll tell me everything about this contingency. Verse 6 And we are his house. What tense? Past, present, or future? Present. It doesn't say we will be his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast, which, by the way, is exactly how I framed it when I said, here's the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is I get to be on God's team, yet to be, that's future, if I finish this race faithfully. Do you see how that's a way different statement than this? That we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope. Now, I understand the holding on to our courage and hope is future in time, but what the scripture is saying is that you are his house if, in the future, we see this play itself out that way. Now, I'm thinking, wow, is that the same tense of the verb later in this text or in those other two passages that I gave you? Yes. Take a look at verse 14. We have, and this isn't just present tense. This is what we call in grammar the perfect tense. You grammarians love this stuff, right? The perfect tense. And it says, we have come to share in Christ. Completed action. We have already come to share in Christ. If, contingency, We hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. It doesn't say we will come to share in Christ. It doesn't say we will get to have a place in the family. It doesn't say we earn anything by our faithfulness. It says that if we are this, then this will happen. And the if works. It's a contingency. It is the proof, the tense proves for me here, the proof of the reality of my relationship with Christ. I am his house, if you watch my life play itself out this way. I have come to share in Christ, completed action, if you watch me hold my confidence firm till the end. Do you see how the contingency now flips itself around? And now all of a sudden what I'm looking at is the proof of the reality. Hebrews 6, verse number 11. That my carrying out of my faithfulness to Christ, it proves something. The reality of something that's already set. Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. And he's just talking about being obedient and doing what's right. Keep doing it all the way to the end of your life in order to make your hope sure. Do you see that? You get to be sure if you see this thing playing itself out with consistent diligence. That's why Paul went into a city in passages like Acts 26, verse 20, and he commanded people not only to repent and turn to God, but he commanded them to do deeds that were appropriate or proving their repentance. Why? Because he wanted to be sure your life has changed and you'll see it. Prove it by what you do. God's gotten a hold of you. He's made dead people live and your life will prove it. Prove it to who? God? No, God knows. The if and the contingency is the revealing of reality. Your faithfulness peels back for the world, and maybe yourself, if you look in the moral mirror, the proof that you are a redeemed person.
0: We're living proof of redemption when we live out our faith. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point and a message titled, A Question of Perseverance, Salvation, and Eternal Security. To hear the complete message or to send your own question to Pastor Mike, visit focalpointradio.org. And while you're there, you can browse through the archive of previous Ask Pastor Mike episodes and listen to many of Pastor Mike's sermons. And be sure to sign up for our free weekly email. Go to focalpointradio.org and look for the link that says Weekly Devotionals. Once you're subscribed, you'll receive an uplifting devotional from Pastor Mike that points you to Christ and encourages you to make Him the focal point of your week. All of these resources are available completely free of charge. Thanks to friends like you who support this ministry. As you've been blessed by Mike's clear, never watered down teaching, will you partner with us so that more people can hear this program? When you give today, we have a wonderful book we'd like to send you to express our thanks. It's titled The Pursuit of Excellence by George Sweeting. To donate by phone, call triple eight three two zero five eight eight five or go to focalpointradio.org. In The Pursuit of Excellence, Dr. Sweeting shares stories of excellence from faith heroes of the past and present. And he'll teach you how to break down the barriers standing in your way and press on even when it's difficult. This book will inspire you to pursue Christ passionately and with your whole self. You can also request The Pursuit of Excellence when you send your donation by mail. Our address is Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654 by the way, if you're new to our listening family, we want to hear from you. When you let us know you're listening, we'll thank you by sending you a free pamphlet that helps you better understand God's will. Ask for the free pamphlet when you contact us at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Druey, inviting you to join us again next time as we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.